Welcome to another episode of the McDonald Laurie Institute's Pod Bless Canada. My name is Marcus Kolga. I'm your host for today's episode about the rise of populism across Europe and the Western world. I'm honored to have with me today one of Canada's leading public intellectuals, a journalist, author, former leader of the Liberal Party, and current rector and president of the Central European University, Michael Ignacio. Thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. You were here last night to deliver a lecture on European populism, almost exactly 30 years to the date after the fall of the Berlin Wall, when democracy seemed to triumph across the world, especially in Europe. This led to an extended period dominated by liberalism and what many thought was indeed the end of history. Yet here we are, wondering how Viktor Orban transformed from a dissident student pro-democracy leader into one of Europe's leading populists. We're watching the final acts before Britain leaves Europe and far-right populist movements threaten Europe. In Czech with President Zeman, Prime Minister Babish, even in Estonia where far-right populists were asked by the incumbent Prime Minister to join the government. What happened? <laughs> Boy, nice easy question to start with. I think we're struggling to understand this and understand whether it's one story or a bunch of quite separate discrete ones. What I, what I do see in Hungary, because I work out of, out of Budapest, is the implantation of a kind of new normal, which is very, very surprising. That is, if you go to Budapest, you, you walk around, you think, this is a free country. Uh, you can stand up on a street corner and denounce Viktor Orban. The police aren't going to take you away. There are free media that you can buy or access online. There is a parliament, uh, you know, the surface reality of democracy is still there. And you have to look quite a lot more carefully to see just how subverted, deformed, uh, neutered the institutions of democracy are. 85% of the media in control of the government, a constitutional court with no capacity to check or control the executive, a parliament which is a total rubber stamp, a politics directed towards academic life, which has forced my university literally out of the country. So uh, on the surface, it looks like a free society. The place is full of tourists. People love Budapest. But beneath the surface, you see a much more sinister development, which is a authoritarian populist who has won four elections. He's not governing by political terror. He's governing with a democratic mandate using democracy to systematically vitiate the institutions that uh, limit his power. This is something new under the sun. And getting back to your original question about what went wrong, this was something we never expected in 1989. We thought very complacently that after communism comes democracy. Well, after communism does come democracy, but nobody expected this kind of democracy majoritarian democracy whose direction is towards the consolidation of a single party state. Uh, and why did it happen? It, it, it's very hard to sort out all the reasons. I think one of the big reasons is simply the return of history. The fact that if a Hungarian asks themselves, what do I want a political system for? What they want is to protect Hungary keep hungry for Hungarians. So the nationalist themes that Orban has tapped into 
are very resonant in a small country with a particular language, a sense that they do not want to simply become Western Europeans. They want to defend what is specific about being Hungarian or Estonian or whatever. So I think nationalism is surged back and these, these politicians like Orban have understood that that's what the pop, pop, population wants their political system to do for them. That is to protect them against globalization, against the West, against anything that diminishes the specificity of being Hungarian. You know, so I think we shouldn't have been surprised, but that's, I think that's how we got there. Does that threaten the sort of Western liberal order that we've built up since the fall of communism? Is there an existential threat? I mean, there seem to be alarmists everywhere saying that this is, you know, this is the end of it and we need to fight back. Is this the end or can we, can we make this work within the current order and especially, you know, within the EU? I mean, a lot of these countries are fighting back. They, they're threatening to pull out of the EU. Is this, is this a problem? I, I'm not an alarmist. I, you know, Hungary is a small country. That's not, and I think Orban is an attractive model to every local would-be authoritarian. That is true. But he is in the EU. He's structurally dependent on subsidies from the EU. There are limits. He can't pull Hungary out of the EU. So the EU operates as some kind of control on just how far he can go. I don't think we're looking at fascism in Hungary. I don't think we're looking at fascism in Poland. Uh, let's hope we, you know more about Estonia than I. I hope we're not looking at fascism in Estonia. Um, no, these people want to have it both ways at once. They want to be part of a European community that, you know, nominally believes in democracy, but they want to have, you know, single party control of their country. So they want it both ways at once. I don't think any of them are envisaging or taking us towards a breakup of the democratic order in Europe. I just don't see that happening. Now, maybe I'm whistling in the dark and too optimistic and history has made fools of us all and might well make fool out of me, but I, I don't see that. I think it's sinister in its own right because I just wish, you know, I'm, I'm married to a Hungarian. I'm very fond of Hungary. I, I just wish there could be more real freedom in the place, but I don't think it's a threat to the international order. So would you say that, I mean, some people have compared the current situation in, in Europe to one that existed in the 1930s, late 1930s. I don't, I don't see that. I don't see that. We, we ran that. we ran that movie. We did that. Uh, it ended in disaster and death and extermination. Um, I, I don't see that. I see worrying kinds of anti-Semitism, but I see counter moves against that. Um, I see in Slovakia, you know, a a human rights lawyer, female, being elected president of the country. I see in Hungary a moderate, liberal, pragmatic, green politician elected as mayor of the country's biggest city, Budapest. Um, I see, you know, very strong uh, resistance to Kaczynski in Poland. It didn't win the last election, but it has control of some of the cities. I see similar ferment in, in the Czech Republic. If we switch to Western Europe and I look at Brexit, I mean, everybody is, I think, alarmist about Brexit in the wrong kind of way. This is a country having the most fundamental debate about its identity and future that I've, I've seen a dem democratic society do in my lifetime. The institutions are holding together. 
it's a mess, but you know, that's what democracy often is. I mean, we're Canadians here. We forget, you know, we spent 30 years in, from the 60s through the 90s in the mess of the constitutional debate. Now it's a dim and distant memory. We, we got through it. Somehow we're still in one piece. Now we're looking at new challenges, Western alienation and all that stuff. I just think we need to think about liberal democracy as being built for crisis, built for conflict. That's what a democracy is. It's, it's a system to moderate and keep peaceful the fundamental arguments we have about our future. And Canadians disagree about a lot of stuff. And so they need a system so that we keep those disagreements civil. And Every society I look at, I see democracy actually being very robustly effective at managing those conflicts. You look at, you look at France, the Gilets jaunes, apart from disgraceful violence in, in Paris particularly, this is, a, this is a conflict from the bottom up, from people saying, if you change the speed limit on country roads in France, you are hitting my pocketbook. If you're putting up the price of gas, you're hitting my pocketbook. Stop treating us as if we didn't exist. Well, that seems to me what democracy should respond to. And President Macron has been forced to respond. Now, uh, the violence apart, this seems to me a sign of a, of a democracy doing what a democracy has to do, which is responding. So you bring up Canada. And uh, of course, we just had an election. There seemed to be a rise in a a new populist party led by Maxime Bernier, who you sat across. Uh, yeah, in, remember Maxime well. Yeah. Maxime, of course, lost his seat. Yeah. Um, his party didn't win a single seat. Yeah. Is that a sign that democracy is working? And does it worry you that there's this rise of populism, you know, yellow vests in Alberta, mm -hmm. um, the alienation, and Maxime Bernier? Um, what does this all mean to Canada? And what, uh, Is there something that we need to do? I think the Bernier defeat, much as I respect Maxine, actually, I always, I always thought he was a kind of nice guy to be with in the House of Commons. But I think his defeat is a very positive sign that there just isn't running room in this country for kind of anti-multicultural, anti-immigration, American-style right-wing stuff. Uh, our two-party system held together and pushed him off the edge of the political system. I think that's basically a good result. A lot of Western alienation, but this is a this is just a permanent feature of a country that's as big as ours. I mean, there are very few countries that go through five time zones and regions as different as ours. Um, the the salient new feature of Canadian politics, which I think is um, extremely important, is that the green issues, the environmental issues, turn out to be deeply divisive regionally. Um, and it and they're divisive not because you know Alberta is full of people who are climate deniers. I mean, Albertans, whom I know, understand exactly how serious the climate challenge is, but their damn lives depend on pumping fossil fuels out of the ground. And so the problem that they encounter, I think, and this is a lesson for all of us, is that we all take this green climate change imperative as an imperative, that is, that puts an end to politics. No, this is where politics has to begin. We have to then sit down and reach agreement on the very difficult regional and class compromises that we're going to have to make in order, you know, to save the planet that we all share. But this pits, you know, 
workers in smokestack industries against people in the new economy. It pits, pits energy-consuming provinces against energy-producing provinces. And we've got to have a whole new politics that just says, okay, we all agree we want to save the planet, but this is the most divisive issue in Canadian politics, frankly. How do we deal with it? Do we build a pipeline? Do, how do we build a pipeline and meet our carbon targets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what I don't like on, on, I'm a kind of green guy, but what I don't like is the ways in which greens walk around saying, well, there's no politics to do here because it's just an imperative that we all owe to agree. I'm sorry. You've got to reach out to people who, whose lives are fossil fuel dependent for their, for, for their livelihood. You've got to reach them and convince them and find a transition that works for them. Well, this is a hugely big issue. And it, this is new. This is the 21st century challenge for the country. Because for us, it's the national unity issue of our time. So because we have very robust political systems, that when you stand outside of Canada, and I work out of Canada, I look back at Canada and I see all the things that drive Canadians crazy. Too many veto points, too much provincial power, um, or too little provincial power, or you know, federal, provincial, municipal divisions, regional divisions, all this, the veto point, the aboriginal veto point. All of this, you think, well, we can't get anything done. Well, we've got a hell of a lot done as a country. And, but the veto points forces to talk. You can't do a pipeline unless you talk to Aboriginals. You may not like that, but folks, that's Canada, right? You, you, know, you may not like having fossil fuels in Alberta, but folks, we produce as much damn oil as Saudi Arabia. Get used to it. You know, that's the, that's the cold water down the back of the green. We got to live with that. It's one country. And we got to find a way to get the oil, frankly, to Tidewater, because our economy depends on it. And then we've got to find a way to make sure we don't damage the climate irreparably. That's what the politics of our country in the 21st century is going to have to be. The other issue uh, is what do we do to prevent the seepage northward of a toxic political culture of enemies? Canada is a country that can't afford a politics of enemies. We are too divided, language against language, Aboriginals against non-Aboriginal regions, West East. We can't afford a politics of enemies in this country. It is too dangerous for us. They can play around with, you know, the politics of personal destruction, the politics of enemies south of the border, but we just can't do that. And I think there has to be a consensus in Canada that we're a country of adversaries. We're a country where we disagree. And we disagree fundamentally about stuff, but there, there are no enemies in the house. And that's terribly important for our politics. And I, but I'm kind of optimistic we can do that because we all know that this place could blow apart. And because it can blow apart, then we don't go there. We just can't go there because we love the country and we want to keep it together. I mean, last night you mentioned social media and media. And I talk a lot about disinformation. I've been watching mm -hmm. disinformation for the past decade, especially the Russian kind, yeah. <clears throat> when we're talking about these divisions. And this brings us back to Hungary and Europe as yeah. well. We know that Russia has meddled in all sorts of elections. Germany with AfD, uh, with the National Front in France, uh, Brexit, yeah. we know, Spain. I mean, the, the list is, is becoming endless. How do we push back against that? I mean, how are you viewing it from Hungary right now, this social media, how we consume media, Russian disinformation, Russian meddling, 
Is there any way to get over that? Because they're, what they're trying to do is clearly divide us and no, polarize us. No, no question. It's sinister. It's new. But we're learning. We've only been in the social media world for 15, 20 years. We're in a, all on a learning curve. When we first opened our phones and this stuff began streaming and we thought, oh, that's interesting. Now we're much more skeptical. There's a learning loop here, which I think we're, we should we ignore at our peril. We're very pessimistic at the moment about social media's negative events. But people are getting smarter and smarter about the disinformation content inside. They're asking, who sent me this? Why am I getting this? Uh, they're unsubscribing when they, when they can. They're, we're pushing back. We're aware uh, of the enormous regulatory challenges that exist now that we have these hugely powerful platforms that are having such an impact on our politics. We're aware that there's constant external interference in our electoral process, which is a new phenomenon uh, and a sinister one. But I think a, an educated electorate gets savvy, gets smart, begins to work against the disinformation, says, okay, I've got to find some clean sources that I can trust. We're all doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm shedding stuff that I just know is messing with my brain and trying to find stuff that is semi-reliable. So I think we, we should not ignore the feedback loop that is educating us to be better and more skeptical consumers of social media and therefore more resistant to the kind of disinformation and manipulation that we're seeing. And we're also shutting down from it because it just, you know, life is too short to spend your whole damn life on, on, these, on these machines. I don't want to sound too optimistic, but I, I'm trying to push back against the pessimism because the pessimism about social media leads us, I think, also to ignore something that I think is positive. It makes government much more difficult. And that is the, the feedback loops are speeding up. They're just instantaneous. The government makes an announcement at nine o'clock in the morning that people really don't like. By 10 o'clock, the government knows it. And, you know, 50 years ago, that just was not happening. The feedback loops were much, much slower. I think that forces government to be more responsive. It forces politicians to more, be more responsive. And it's very difficult. It means that the inertial response of politicians now is don't say anything, right? Because, seems that way. you know, you're going to get... You're going to get mugged on social media in, in half an hour. So politicians have to learn because that sets up another feedback loop. The, the public starts saying, as they said in the last election, why aren't politicians talking to us about anything serious? Well, the reason they're not is some of these negative feedback loops with the social media. Eventually, a politician will learn. I'm going to say what I think because I think that's how I differentiate myself from everybody else. And I've got some clear messages I'm going to live. And people will flood to a politician that does that. So let's not be pessimistic and fatalistic about these technologies. We're learning to live with them. And we are changing the technologies as we live with them. And, and that makes me long-term optimistic about the impact of technology on our democracy. You're watching what's happening in Russia. I'm sure mm -hmm. that you've been watching Russian uh, influence in countries like Hungary. Mm -hmm. There seems to be an alignment between Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin. What's, what's your take? Where is this going? Well, where would, does, where does would, this end? I would I'd push back a little bit. 
I think Russian influence in the election in the United States was at the margins. I don't think it was decisive. I don't think anybody who says that's what tipped it to Trump just doesn't understand the electoral politics. I think it's at the margins in Hungary for a very good reason. <laughs> the Russians invaded Hungary in 1956, killed people in the I mean, the historical memory of Russia is, is extremely negative. That creates limits to just how close Orban can get to Putin. That's fact number one. Fact number two, you know, what power of attraction does the Putin regime have for the world? Precisely zero. Who's emigrating to Moscow because it's such a wonderful, free, entrepreneurial society that gives hope to its people? Absolutely no one. That's important. That's important. If you're in the Baltic states, you, you, you have a huge problem with constant Russian meddling with the domestic Russian-speaking population. You've got constant threats to the national so sovereignty of these three Baltic countries. But you have no one in the Baltic states saying, gee, Russia is really a wonderful place, a fantastic model. I wish I could live there. I mean, you, just, you know, native Baltic people think, are you nuts if you said something like that, right? So that's the other thing I would say is, what is, what is Mr. Putin's succession plan, right? After Mr. Putin, what, right? These are regimes with no future. Mr. Putin's in his late 60s. Everybody sits around thinking, what happens next? I mean, the regime will perpetuate, this structure will perpetuate itself, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a structure without a future. And, and so the societies that have a future, that offer a future for people, are the real rivals, are the real competitors. I just don't see Russia as being a serious strategic rival to anybody. For that reason, for almost a moral reason, which is that it's a society that appeals to no one. I mean, it's, look, I'm, I have Russian, I have Russian origins. It's a, I love Russian culture. I love exactly. Russian language. That's not my point. It's the system attracts no one. Well, my old friend Boris Nemtsov used to say, I mean, you have to separate the Russian people and Russian culture from the Russian regime. Yes. they're two separate yes. things. Yes, that's what I would say. Exactly, Nemtsov was right, and we remember him with respect. And, and that's another story. Yes, it's a regime that kills people. They shot Nemtsov in broad daylight on a Moscow bridge. What is that? What more do you need to know about the regime after you see the photograph of Nemtsov's body on that bridge? That's what I'm saying. I mean, anybody who looks at this think that's not the regime I want. The hoods, the authoritarians, the bad guys, yes. But any, any person who's tasted freedom doesn't want that. And that's true of Hungary, that's true of the Czech Republic, that's true of Poland, that's true of the Baltic states, that's true of anywhere. And, and so, yes, authoritarianism is on the ascendant, but authoritarianism has nothing to offer free societies. There is zero temptation. In the 30s, Stalin and Hitler offered a temptation to democratic societies, because the trains appeared to run on time. There's a kind of vigorous vision of the future. It was all propaganda. It was all sham. But this authoritarianism offers people nothing. But is there a threat? I mean, you spent three, four years fighting this regime who was trying to shut down the institution that you lead, and you were fighting it. Um, you know, you still have a presence in Budapest, but 
most of yeah. forced to move. Is this is this something that we need to wait out, or is this something that we need to actively push back against? Oh, definitely push back. And you know, my university has been in Budapest for twenty five years, and the regime decided for electoral reasons, just to make George Soros the, their campaign issue. And because our university was founded by Soros, they just basically forced us to uh, open a campus in Vienna so we can teach our U.S. degrees because we're not allowed to teach in Budapest. But we will stay in Budapest and we will continue to fight and continue to be, in a sense, the last man standing in terms of free institutions. What has been disappointing and is a real object lesson is that Europe, European institutions and European countries did a lot of blah, blah, blah about how shocked we are by this attack on academic freedom. But in terms of bringing the hammer down and forcing Orban to back down, they weren't there. And that's an object lesson. Europe talks about its values, but it only defends its interests. It only defends, you know, the single currency, the the market, but its values, it does not defend in Central and Eastern Europe at all. It's allowed serious degradation in the rule of law, serious degradation in academic freedom, core principles of the European Union. They've just let them go. And that's an object lesson. We should not put our faith and trust in the European Union. It doesn't make me a Brexiteer, by the way, just this is just the facts of the matter. Uh, and that means that institutions like mine have to fight for themselves and, you know, make friends wherever we can. And we've gone to Vienna. And let's also be clear, there's a far right party in Austria that doesn't want us there. And the far edge of that party has real neo-Nazi hardware. So, you know, I, I'm trying to give you a very optimistic story about the future of democracy. But let's look clearly at some of the perils and, and obstacles and threats that are out there. So last question. Where does that leave Canada? If our allies are not standing up for their, our mutual values, our common values, if we have a partner to the south of us who's also fleeing from those same values, where do we go? I've never seen Canada so alone in my, my lifetime. We built a foreign policy on a close relationship with the United States. We rode the rocket of American prosperity. And suddenly we, and we thought our, our relationship was non-transactional. That is, it was a, it was a partnership of a real blood brotherhood because we'd fought on the same side in three global conflicts and we discover it's perfectly transactional. I mean, and I think it's not just Trump. I think that the United States has decided globalization doesn't work for us anymore and therefore Global free trade doesn't work for us anymore. And NAFTA doesn't work for us anymore. And that just changes everything about our relationship with the United States. But I'm afraid I think that's an enduring phenomenon. I mean, long before Trump, there were blue dog Democrats saying, I don't like NAFTA. I don't like this, this uh, free trade with Canada. And so that is a real concern. Uh, Europe, I think, is not a really reliable uh, geostrategic partner for Canada because Europe no longer has, I think, a common foreign policy. It's got 27 nation states. And so Canada will have to play pickup basketball with the Nordics on one issue and then pick up 
basketball with a French on Francophonie issues and pick up basketball with, a Ch- with the Germans on some other issue. That makes our foreign policy very, very um, complicated. And, you know, the, the, the problem is that we do a lot of virtue signaling and the virtue signaling was in a certain way cynical, although we weren't honest enough to admit it. We would denounce, you know, the treatment of women in Saudi Arabia with a tweet and think, well, we've done, you know, we've, we've done our job. And then suddenly Saudi Arabia takes it seriously and slams back at us and pulls their students out of Canadian universities. And we discover that their virtue signaling has a price, has a cost. And so it kind of exposed the emptiness of our virtue signaling in a way that I think gives us all, you know, a a moment to reconsider. Look, that's the negative side. The positive side is that we're one of the four or five most admired countries in the world. We're one of the top destinations for immigration in the world. God gave us unbelievable natural resources and and. And we have one of the most dynamic and growing populations in the world. The key challenge for Canada, actually, this is kind of a Voltairean point, would be to cultiver notre jardin. That is, make sure our democracy is as good as we say it is. Make sure our democracy, our domestic politics, is just crackerjack, innovative. Instead of virtue signaling, we need to get, for example, green policy right and then show the world how a mature democracy adjudicates the share conflicts that result when we have to make some really fundamental decisions about green policy. The minute Canada does that, the whole world will be tracking to our door to find out how we do it. That's how we lead in the world. We just, we get some of the big policy choices for the 21st century fixed in our country and then they'll beat a path to our door. That's how we do it. But we no longer can count on, you know, the North Atlantic alliance. We can no longer count on the Americans. We, we are much more alone in the world than in the past, and we do not have the leverage to force China to release our hostages. I mean, we've just got to wake up to the fact that we're actually a, a very small country in a big, harsh, destabilized world. This is not the world that I grew up in. And the only response that makes sense to me is make sure that our democracy is as strong and vital and innovative as we possibly can. And that then in turn means you have to have a vital, innovative economy. And you've got to put the democracy and the economy together. And then you, you become what we have been and we keep being, which is an example to the world. We are, we still are an example to the world less virtue signaling, and just get our own house in order. That's what I feel we need to be doing. All right, well, we'll try to do that. Thank you very much for for joining me this morning. Pleasure, pleasure.